after a week like this, I am imagining I'm not the only person that might be thinking, asking, wondering, what in the world is going on? And it's not just a week like this week, but this week in particular. Last night, another white supremacist group gathered together, making demonstrations in Charlottesville. Earlier this week, most all of you, I would assume, or know about shootings that happened in Nevada. We keep hearing about nuclear weapon threats in North Korea, and it seems as if these news stories aren't at all new. Like, oh wow, that's a surprise, or these things have never happened before. Now they do seem to be, like in the Nevada shooting case, happening in more terrible, devastating effects, but how many times have you heard people say, our world is, is more divided, more messed up than it ever has been? I, I think I'd be a millionaire if I got a dollar every time I've heard that. So what in the world's going on? Like, in the literalist sense of that question, what is going on? Where is our country, our world, this nation, where are we headed? And that's just like what's in the news. That's what's going on out there. Then let's zoom in to here. Have you ever been wondering what's, what's going on here and in your circle of influence? Any of you coming into this room with personal, individual conflicts with friends, family members? Any issues at work with bosses or coworkers? Or how about the depths of your own soul? How many of us are feeling tired and defeated and beat down by the failures of our own sin? How often do I have to meet with so many of you, week after week, hear your confessions of, I need the gospel, I need grace, I'm struggling, Pastor Phil. So maybe this week is a week where you've been tempted to even shout, God, where are you? God, why are you letting this happen? What are you going to do about it? What's your plan? Today's passage will not solve all of our questions, but I do think we are given a very helpful response. One of the good things about teaching the Bible and just going through books is that crises in Nevada can happen and we don't need to change the sermon series for what's going on in the world. God's word is so sufficient, so timely. God's spirit's orchestrating everything. I think this message is timely, it is relevant, it is helpful for people who are wondering, where is God? What are you doing? We are given in this passage of scripture the solution to the problems of evil and sin in the world. We are given in this passage of scripture the solution to the fighting, the bickering, the divisions and conflict in the world. If that does not whet your appetite to stay awake this morning, I don't know what else will. I hope you're interested to see in this passage the solution to the problems of evil. The problems of conflict. We're so divided, so let's get everybody on the same page. Let's get unity and love toward one another. How's that going to happen? Galatians chapter 5. Follow along with me if you would. Page 975 of the Black Bibles around you. 
before I read verse 16, I want to remind you, and I'm actually going to start in verse 13, but I want to remind you that we saw a little glimpse of the Spirit several times in this letter, but look even at verse 5, for through the Spirit by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. And I just pause right there and let you know that already before we get to our passage this morning, we have heard that the Spirit of God gives hope. Do you see that in verse 5? This is exactly what I'm talking about with our questions. What are you doing, God? How can I continue to believe you, worship you, sing songs, and say, ascribe, O church, the greatness of your name when I look around in the world and I see what's going on? And it says here in verse 5 that through the Spirit, by faith, by trusting in God, we have hope. We have hope in our future. So let's now read our passage, starting in verse 13, all the way to the end of the chapter. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. This will be a little bit of a different message in terms of its format. I hope you're able to follow along and you will get the solution that we have talked about that I have asked the question of. Here it is. What is the solution to all the fighting, divisions, and conflict in the world? What is the solution to the problems of evil and sin? One question, I mean I asked it in two different ways, but what's the solution? That's the question. It's all we're going to talk about this morning. What is the solution? And the answer we have in this passage is the Holy Spirit. That's the solution. So I don't know if that's, whoa, what you're thinking. But that's exactly what we just read. And when you understand this passage in its context, when you understand its passage in the story of the whole Bible, I hope you'll see 
That there is great reason to put your faith in God and that through the Spirit you can have hope for his plans for the world. So the solution to fighting divisions and conflict and evil and sin is the Holy Spirit. It's God's plan. So first, let me just try and make the case that this is in fact what he's talking about and hope you don't miss it because when I say the Holy Spirit or when I read this passage, I know that several of you have been to church before, like even before Embassy Church. And because of that, you might have baggage. You're carrying into this room ideas about what this passage is saying and I'd like us to empty out the baggage and maybe take a fresh look. What I mean by that is many people look at this passage and they start getting introspective. They start thinking and examining themselves and although that is an aspect of what we see in this passage, it is not the primary focus of this passage. The focus of this passage is the community and the world. Look at it again. Look at verses 13 and 14. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. What is Paul talking about at this point? You have been set free from the bondage of the Old Testament law, You have been set free from the slavery of sin. And so therefore, now that you are free, do not use your freedom to say, oh, great, I'm free. I can do whatever I want. He says, be a slave to love. This is what we talked about last week as we ended the message. That real Christian freedom is the freedom from the inability to do anything that pleases God. You were all born in the world and we can't please God and now God frees us to now please God and love people. The reason there's so much sin and suffering in the world is because we're all stuck in this sin in the world. So now you're free because of Christ, because of the gospel. Look at verse one, for freedom Christ has set us free. How do we get free? Because of Christ, through his work on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection, which we'll refer to again later. But the context is a community of people that are to be loving one another. And then what does verse 15 say? Not doing what? Biting, devouring, and consuming one another. So in verses 13 and 15, I hope it's really simple that you see that the context of this talk about walking and keeping in step with the Spirit is in the context of him talking about the relationships in the church. The community. Are we all seeing this? Is this this a fairly simple point? Don't need to go into the Greek language. Don't need to whip out any... Bible dictionaries, it's just basic reading. If we notice that his focus here is on loving one another, the question then might be, but Paul, if you're getting rid of the whole Old Testament law, how are we going to love one another? In fact, you just quoted the Old Testament law. You said, we're free from the law. We don't have to be under the law anymore. Two things he wants to tell you. One is make sure that you look If you turn back in Galatians chapter 3, notice what he says in 3.10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Back to chapter 5. That phrase is very, very important. He is not saying we don't need to obey God anymore. He's saying stop relying on your obedience to God. Otherwise, you'll be under a curse. That's the point of Galatians. Do not rely on works of the law. Not don't obey the law. 
That's why he can easily quote the law after he says, guess what, we're done with the law. And then, hey, by the way, I'm going to quote the law and say you should love one another. Oh, which one is it? Are we done with the law or are we obeying the law? No, no, obeying the law is fine. Relying on the law for you to be in God's family, that's not going to work. And that's what we've been looking at in Galatians for this entire sermon series. So the question then is, if that's what we're to do with this newfound freedom, is to obey the whole intent of the law. So if you summarize the entire Old Testament law, what's the summary of it? Love. Jesus says, love God and love your neighbor. Paul says, love one another as you'd have them love you. That's the summary of the law. So if you wanted to obey all 613 laws in the Old Testament, at the root and essence of them all is to love each other. In community, it's about us. It's a we text. It's not an individual text only. So let's get our minds off of our self-introspection and let's get our minds around us. How are we doing at Embassy Church? That's the sort of introspection we should be thinking about. Similarly, we need to be thinking about how it's going to happen. Okay, let's not bite and devour each other in this church. Let's not be a part of the whole world's divisive, conflicting, we can't get along, everybody's all divided in this world, not even just in America and the rest of the world, but even in in the church. We we don't have any unity and any love in the church. How how, how is that going to happen? That's what he's asking us to do. Do you see that? Love each other. Use your freedom to love each other in the church. And if I sit here and just say, okay, then do it. How's that going to go? Tomorrow morning, I want you to wake up, and I want you to love the members of the church and the people around you more than you did yesterday. What are you going to do to try and start stirring up love in your heart? Like, how, how does that even work? How can you even command love? answer our passage of scripture the holy spirit look at verse 16 but i say in light of all that i just told you about using your freedom to love one another i say don't bite and devour one another don't consume each other i say the answer to the problem of not having the law and wondering how this righteousness of love is going to come the answer is walk by the spirit that's it That is his main point, I believe, in this passage. That's why there's one point in this sermon, walk by the Spirit. Put your hope in the God who provides and gives the Holy Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. How how is that the answer to the problems in the world and in this church and in your heart? How, How is that the answer? And he gives the answer. He says, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Some English translations have wrecked this verse. I mean, wrecked it bad. This verse says, walk by the Spirit. Which verb form is that in? It's a command, right? I'm asking you imperatively, do this. Walk by the Spirit. And then some English translations will say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. Two commands. That is not the way this verse should be read. The English Standard Version that's in front of you gets it quite right. This is a promise. It's a conditional statement. If You walk by the Spirit, then you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. It's a guarantee. I promise it. You can count on it. You can bank on it. You can put your hope on this. 
Walking in the spirit will then mean you will not walk in the desires of the flesh. So it's like, I can't walk both this way and this way at the same time. I got to go one way or the other. So I'm either walking that way or that way. That's the kind of idea here. And this is exactly what he says in verse 17. Why? Why does it work that way? How does this promise work? Verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to one another. To keep you from doing the things that you want to do. If you would like to obey God's command to love one another, then the answer is to walk moment by moment, step by step, in humble obedience and dependence on the Spirit of God. If you're doing that, you will not desire the things of the flesh. You you can't go both directions. So therefore, focus your mind and your heart and your attention and all of your being on satisfying this command. Walk by the Spirit. That will then lead to love for one another. Because you can't love one another and then hate one another at the same time. You can't be unified and disunified and all in conflict with each other at the same time. They're in conflict with each other. They're at war with each other. And so if you're doing the one, it's going to prohibit you from doing the other. It keeps you from doing the other one. And that's exactly the logic he's speaking here in verses 16 through 17. So, before we move on, I think it's very, very important we define our terms. The all-elusive definition of the Holy Spirit. Do you all assume, like I do, that if I were to go around with the microphone and ask for definitions, that we might get 15, 20, 30 different definitions of the Holy Spirit? Like, who is he? What is he? I think a lot of us honestly think of it like Star Wars. I mean, let's just be honest. I think a lot of people think, oh, it's like, it's like this invisible force. And there's a positive one and a negative one. And the Holy Spirit's just the positive one, you know? The light side, the good side. I don't think that that's 100% off, but it's off, okay? It's invisible. That's true. But it's not just an abstract, impersonal force. It is a personal force, if you want to put it that way. So my definition for you, in a very simple way, is the invisible, personal presence of God. The Holy Spirit from Old to New Testament is all about the Spirit of God himself being in the midst and influencing and empowering and emboldening people to do things they wouldn't have been able to otherwise. Like, for example, in Genesis chapter 2, Adam would not be able to even breathe without God's ruach, his spirit, in him. So even your very breath is because of God's presence, in a general sense, to let you breathe today. Breath is so perfect of an illustration for what the Holy Spirit is. Because it's life-giving, without the breath, you can't live It's invisible, but it's real. None of you in this room are going to deny the existence of breath. (sighs) You might need a mint, but if you do that, (sighs) if you start talking, you can start feeling it on your hand. You feel that you got breath, and these words, they can speak life, or they can destroy. Words, breath, that's ruach. 
It's also used for the word wind. We've seen enough hurricanes, haven't we? Is wind a powerful force that changes and transforms things? Do you need any more images in the Caribbean or in Florida or in Houston to see that the wind is real, even though you cannot see it? That is what the Holy Spirit is, an invisible, personal, emphasis on the personal. It's not an it. It's not a what. It's a who. It's God, the invisible, personal presence of God. That's what the Holy Spirit is. That's what Paul is referring to here, the Spirit of God. Now, what's the flesh? That's the other definition. And some of your Bible translations will give the translation or interpretation sinful nature. And actually, that is a very good interpretation, even though the word is just in flesh or in the flesh. So this is a more literal rendering of the words, but it seems as if Paul regularly uses this phrase, in the flesh, especially in this context, and the one you heard earlier in Romans 8, earlier in the service, to talk about the corrupt flesh, the sinful flesh. So, with those two definitions in mind, let me repeat, in summary, what I just told you. All of us, I hope, are longing for a world full of people who love each other and don't bite and devour or are in conflict. True? Hopefully. A lot of amens. Any head noddings? Yes. That would be good. I would like to stop seeing shootings and nuclear war threats. Like, what if the entire world was full of people that didn't hate each other and loved each other and they were unified? Okay, I hope you're signing up for that. Yes, that would be good. How does that happen then? By walking with the invisible, personal presence of God, step by step, moment by moment. And when you're doing that, you are opposing that sinful desire and influence to go the opposite direction, which is clearly laid out in our passage of what that looks like. And by the way, what is the emphasis in the list that we read in verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident. These are obvious. Like, everybody knows what evil and sin is. Now, strangely enough, there are times where many people question whether these things are sins or not. But in general, you see that there's three things that are listed right from the start that have to do with sexual issues. Sexual morality is the porneia word. Impurity is about impure thoughts and sensuality. All go together. Then you have religious worship that's Idolatry and sorcery probably linked together as the next category. And then notice the next category, the third category. This, this is why I want to tell you that this whole emphasis here is about repairing the relationships in the community and in the world. Look at this list. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissension, division, envy. What do all of those have in common? They all describe biting, devouring, and consuming one another. It's one another focused. So then when we get to the fruits of the Spirit, what it looks like when somebody is walking step by step, moment by moment, that not just them individually, but communally, we are filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness. That's what he's talking about. And if you have a community of people that are doing that walking by the Spirit moment by moment by moment, then you don't need any laws. 
think about me as a parent. Why do I add laws as my children get older? Because they sin. Because they rebel. Because they disobey. You're going through parenting and you didn't think, oh, I would have never thought they would have done that. Well, now we need a rule for this. No more doing that. And so you start adding laws. When you read the Old Testament, one of the things that the Bible tells us is that God kept adding laws because his people kept sinning. To restrain them, not to fix them. And that's one of the big problems that we see in Galatians is that the law could never fix the hearts of the people and make them be loving. It's just restraining them until one day the time comes when God does change and transform people's hearts from the inside out and makes a community of people that actually obey his law. At this point, I want us to pause, not for a definition, but an illustration, because I want us to think about what this means and looks like. Because in my experience as a Christian, this is me personally and then from many other conversations, one of the things I feel like is when we start talking about the Holy Spirit, a lot of us are not only all over the map with our definitions, but we're kind of all over the map of like, okay, what does that mean? What does that look like? It just sounds like Christian lingo of like, yeah, just the Spirit does it through you. And you're like, Okay, sounds good. But like, like, what does that mean? Like, help me kind of grasp what does that actually look like? And here's my best shot. It probably won't do it justice. But I'm currently married. Been married for, I think it's, oh, 13 years, 12 years, going on 12 and a half years. Before that, I was not married. And when I was not married, I was a single man living in a college dorm room, all on my own, nobody to influence me on my day-to-day decisions. So when I would eat, I did not eat vegetables at all. Like, uh, this is not exaggeration, I did not eat vegetables. Now, any of you that know anything about the digestive system, that's not good for you. So this was bearing bad fruits, and I have plenty of inappropriate stories to tell you about it. I did not wash my clothes. Now, I did have, because I was a basketball player, like all my undergarments and different things washed by our trainer and different people. And so I had like fresh undergarments, but I never did laundry. I remember one time we had open dorms because we had a Christian campus. And so you're not allowed to have boys and girls in the same dorm. And I invited my girlfriend, who's my now wife, into my dorm. And she's like, your bed looks gross. I said, well, what do you mean? She's like, it doesn't look like you've washed it. And it's like probably a good six months into the school year. I go, why would I wash my bed? Are, are you all starting to get the picture here of like the bad fruits of Phil just all on his own walking in the flesh? No vegetables, no laundry. I could go on, but hopefully you get the idea. I goofed off, I got in trouble, and then I got married. I got married and I started living with another woman. Like that in and of itself changes and transforms you. I started to eat broccoli for the first time in my life, no joke. I started to realize, wow, this is like changing my world. I started to go to bed before 2 a.m., my normal bedtime as a college student, single guy, I'd just stay up till whenever and think, oh, I could just sleep through my classes, and that's in fact what I did. It's like, wow, I am a much better student when I actually go to bed on time. I slept, I ate better, she, she did my laundry, and I helped some, you know? I was clean, 
These are wonderful changes. Would you all agree? Like, wow, Phil, you've got clean clothes on. You're eating better. Question. Was that me making those changes or was that Christine? Well, I said yes. I said I do. I invited her into my life, did I not? I said, I would like to make you available to all of my life and speak into it. I was willing to let her critique me and say, that's disgusting. Why did you say that? What, what are you thinking? Why are you wearing a sweater on an 80 degree Sunday morning? Sometimes you're still in the flesh, you know? But she is influencing me from the outside because I have allowed it. I have decided to walk with her moment by moment. Now imagine we say, yeah, yeah, let's get married, and then you just go live somewhere else. What's going to happen to Phil? Same old patterns are going to happen. There is a conscious, active decision to allow her to walk with me every single day of our lives over these last 12 and a half years. Do you see what I'm trying to say now? The Holy Spirit is a person. It is an influence from the outside that you're inviting into your life. But who's really making the changes? Well, it wasn't me. I mean, this, this was not my plan. This was not my agenda. This was a wiser, better half that was helping me become the man that hopefully I am today much better than I was when I was 19 and got married. Do, do you see how this is helpful? It at least helps me understand, okay, just in the same way that I take each day, one at a time, and I allow the, the positive influence of my wife to influence me. Walk with the Spirit of God in that way, day by day, moment by moment, and don't be distant from him. Don't let have him live in a different part of your life. And, and don't close him off to certain areas because you're afraid of what he might do. All he wants to do is bear good fruit in you. And you're balking back at it as you not trusting that God's plans for you are good. His plans for you and this community and the world is good. So I hope you'd see it. I hope you see that this entire section of scripture is about you changing internally as you allow the spirit to influence you step by step, moment by moment. And then us collectively, because this is about one another. This is about us doing life together as a church. In fact, if that's not clear enough, notice how the passage ends. Look at verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We'll just pause there, but do you see where he's going? There's no chapter divisions when he's writing this letter. The whole section here is about loving one another, bearing one another's burdens, caring for each other, making sure that if somebody's hurting and in sin that you would reach out to them, but you too watch out for your own sin. And we'll unpack that more, Lord willing, next week. But the idea that I want you to see and not miss, that the fruits of the Spirit are about us, about you, plural, about the old southern slang, y'all. That, that's how you should translate these words. 
Let us keep in step with the Spirit. Not just you individually. Christianity is not an individual religion where you just, you and Jesus, introspection, I just look at myself and like, ah, I don't have the fruits. Okay, what am I supposed to do? Live in community. We'll help you. That's what this whole passage is saying. Let people love you and be so stirred up by their love and their walking by the Spirit that you're helped and encouraged. That's his plan. His plan is a group of people that love each other like this that are walking together as a community. Are you starting to see how the Holy Spirit then is the answer to the question I asked? The solution to conflict. The solution to divisions. The solution to sin. If you're not seeing it in this passage, here's my only other attempt, and then we'll close out. Here's the whole story of the Bible, summarized by thinking about just the Holy Spirit. The whole Bible tells us a story that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He made man to dwell with, walk beside. Do you remember Galatians, I mean, Genesis chapter 3? What was Adam and Eve doing with God in the garden? What does it say? Anyone? They were walking. When he says walk by the Spirit, you should think Genesis chapter 3. The original intention of creation was that God and humans did not have opposite plans, but they walked together in the coolness of the day, moment by moment, day by day. The God of the universe influencing the humans that were living on the universe. And if you've ever been around the Bible, you know that the very next story is really bad. The humans decided to reject the influence of God and say, no, no, we will determine what is good and evil, what is right and wrong. We don't need any influence. We will go this way. And so God says, you can go all the way out of the garden. At that moment, the story of God and man being together and God's presence being close with humanity is now shattered. It is ripped apart. And now God, heaven, and earth are two separate entities throughout the rest of the storyline of scripture. When you fast forward the story, what you find is murder, very next story, Genesis chapter four. This is what happens when we decide what is good and evil. One brother kills another brother. A man named Lamech starts getting a bunch of women to be his wives and slaves, and he starts killing a bunch of people and bragging about it. Then you get to Genesis chapter 6, and the story is getting worse and worse. The spiral down, down, down is getting worse because he says every single person, every thought all day long is evil. That's what happens when you're separated from the presence of God. The further away you get from God, the darker it gets here on this earth. That's what the first six chapters of the Bible tell us. And some of us at this point might say, stop, 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 stop. So wait. If God's going to get rid of evil, and everyone is evil on the earth, well, then he's got to get rid of everybody. And in fact, that's the next story of the Bible. The flood comes, and God says, I'm going to get rid of everybody because I am sick of the evil that I see on this earth. And so the God of the Bible does not look at shootings in Nevada and say, oh, oh, I just kind of like turn the other way and say, no, I, I, don't, I don't care about those things. The God of the Bible is righteous and just. And so we see in the very early story of scripture that he is going to judge humans for their running away from God and their rebellion and high treason against him as king. And so he does. He judges them. Except for one family. Because some of us are thinking, well, if he got rid of everybody, why didn't he just start over with, like, you know, the best person on the earth? And so he does. He starts over with the most righteous man on the earth named Noah. 
The only problem is, is that Noah brought the sin infection on the ark with him and his family. So the whole story of scripture we said a couple weeks ago is narrated by acts like a play. And each of them at their decisive moments have covenant promises from God. So Noah and his family get off the ark. It's, they're starting all over. It's a whole new creation, a whole new Adam, a whole new world. It's wonderful and glorious. Until sin lets loose again. Something shady happens in a tent between Adam and one of his sons. He gets cursed. Noah gets drunk. Did we see works of the flesh as drunkenness in our text in Galatians? So wait, even the best, most righteous person, if we were to get rid of everybody and make the, the most righteous person, and my guess is, unless you're really, really proud, you'd probably be like, eh, I'm probably not the most righteous person on the whole earth. So like if God were to do that flood thing again, that he'd have to get rid of me too. So even if he did that plan, and even if you were that person, Genesis 6 through 9 tells us, it doesn't work. A different plan has to come. And so God made a promise, and right after that promise, sexual sin happens. Genesis 12, the next promise comes. He says, okay, now I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a new family, and I'm gonna bless the whole world. I'm gonna bring healing and blessing to the whole world through this one guy. God is gracious. God is making a promise. He is showing love to a very unlovely people. And when he does so, what's the very next story? Sexual sin again. Abraham says to his wife, Sarah, hey, let's pretend that you're my sister so that they could go sleep with you and then they don't kill me. Next act of the play, act three, the covenant with Moses. God makes another promise. Abraham's family, God's faithful to bless Abraham with a family, even though his wife was barren. Amazing story. Get to Genesis, Exodus chapter 20. God makes another promise. Delivers his people out of slavery. Tells them, I'm going to make you a new nation in your own land, and you are going to be set apart for all the world to experience the presence of God in your midst. I'm going to make a tabernacle, and there, heaven and earth will touch again. There'll be a a connecting point, and everybody will know, if you want to see the God of the universe, if you want to experience his presence, it's going to be in Exodus. It's going to be in the tabernacle, in the people of Israel, in their camp. So that's his promise that he gives them. What's the very next story after God makes that promise? Are you getting the pattern yet? Spiritual adultery. Making a golden calf. Fast forward to the covenant made with David, Act 4. The nation of Israel is now a big, large kingdom. David is a prosperous king. Things are about as good as you could imagine them to be from one set of looking at it. God makes another promise to David and says, David, I know that you want to build me a house, a permanent house here on this earth, where my presence, this is the theme here, the presence of God It's going to be in the tabernacle. And David's like, I want not just a little tent. I want a temple, a permanent house for the Lord. He says, no, no, I'm going to make you a promise. I'm going to make a house for you. I'm going to make a kingdom for you. Through your family, I am going to bring my spirit onto the earth. The very next story, after God makes a promise to David. Do you know what it is? David and Bathsheba. The very next story. Are, are, we, are, are you kidding me? 
every single pivotal point where God is overflowing with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness to his end of the covenant, God is continually showing what an amazing God he is. How great is he? What are we doing to his face? Spitting at it, slapping it. So at this point in the story, you've got to get like, okay, this is not working. We need a different plan. And so the, the prophet of Ezekiel that was read to you earlier in the service, Ezekiel 36 says, I am going to come and I'm going to actually put my spirit in your heart. Did you hear that earlier in the service? Ezekiel chapter 36. I'm going to put my spirit in your heart and I'm going to cause you to walk in my ways. Did you hear that phrase? The phrase that we were seeing from Genesis all the way to Ezekiel to now Galatians 5, to walk in my ways. God is going to cause that to happen. He's going to intervene. He's going to come in and do something where he's going to influence you in a positive direction where you're going to want to walk with the Spirit. How's that happen? God sent his son, Jesus Christ, faithful to all the previous promises, all coming to fruition in Jesus. Jesus lives the perfect life perfectly obeys the law, dies the death that you and I deserved. If you would like to know what the fruits of the Spirit look like, read about Jesus. We now know what love is because Christ gave his life for us. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. We now know what real patience looks like because of Christ and his patient endurance of suffering. We know what faithfulness looks like because his faithfulness to keep God's promises all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross. Self-control in the midst of temptations when Satan comes and says, hey, I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world. And on and on we could go. Jesus embodies not just all the commandments of the law, but the fullness of what the law meant. He bears the fullness of God's Holy Spirit, walking moment by moment, step by step. The Spirit of God came down him in the baptism that we see. The dove coming down and saying, this is my son whom I'm well pleased. That story shows us God is fully God, fully man in Jesus Christ. And his death, his resurrection purchases for us deposited Holy Spirit that he then promised. So here's, here's the difference. God makes a promise to Noah. God makes a promise to Abraham. God makes a promise. On and on it goes. Every time he makes a promise, what do the people do? They sin. They slap him in the face. They spit on him. And there's a sense to which that's exactly what the nation of Israel does. But in this case, they slap this promise in the face, it leads to the overwhelming blessing of the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus said that it would be good for all of us if he just leaves the earth. In that moment, you're wondering, what do you mean? Jesus, no, no, no. No, we, we want you to stay. Like imagine me coming up to church next week, and I have no plans to do this, but I might say, hey guys, I'm done being pastor. I'm going to leave. You're like, on an earthly level, you're like, oh, that's that doesn't sit so well. What, what's going on? No, no, no. We, we, we want you to stay. Hopefully, right? <laughs> Imagine if I then said, I'm leaving, but Jesus is going to be your new pastor. Oh, okay, okay. You can leave. See ya. Like, I'll, I'll take Jesus. 
I mean, all of us would think that would be the best, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be the best thing to have Jesus as your actual pastor, to know him and walk with him and sit down with him and confess your sins to him and have an intimate relationship with Jesus as your senior pastor of your church? Like, absolutely. Wouldn't that be And Jesus says, no, no, that's not the plan. It would be better if I leave so that I can then take my rightful place at the right hand of the Father and then send you the promise of Ezekiel 36 and send the Spirit because I can only be at one church at one time. And so for the entire world, I can, from the right hand of the Father, like the command center of air traffic control, watching all the planes in the sky, he can look at all the peoples of the earth. And from his rightful seat at the throne room of heaven, he has interaction with and ability to listen, hear, and walk with you through his Holy Spirit. Heaven and earth are now linked together again because of Christ's incarnation, because of Christ's perfect life, because of Christ's death on a cross, because of Christ's resurrection from the dead, and don't forget this one, because of his ascension to the right hand of the Father and the promised Holy Spirit coming after he ascends. That, my friends, is the plan for the entire world that God would send out his spirit and from the throne room he would order the whole universe and movings and stirrings of the spirit here in churches like this one. All over the earth, all at the same time, we can pray and worship and sing and read his word and sense the very presence of God now. Already now, in this service, right now as I'm talking as we take the Lord's Supper, as we sing songs, and as we love each other, as he called us to, through taking steps of the Holy Spirit. That's the plan. What, what's God doing in the world? It's that. In this church. That's our hope, friends. The promise of the Holy Spirit has come. Already now. And we are now to live like an embassy in a foreign land, we now live in a foreign land called earth. Heaven is our true home. Jesus is our true captain, our true senior pastor, shepherd, high priest, whatever illustration you'd like to use. He's the real president. He's our political leader. He is everything. And we gather every week, week after week, in community, getting in each other's lives, not because we're nosy and busybodies and gossips, because we want to walk in step with the Spirit together, we know we need each other's help, and because we know we've been commanded to love each other. So that this church, by God's Holy Spirit, not because of us, because of the Holy Spirit, we will be a display to the world of a vastly different kind of people. Imagine a world filled with all kinds of disunity and division and strife and discord. What if this church could be a church of multiple ethnicities, multiple male, female, older, younger, wise, rich, poor, all across the spectrum, but yet we can stand together and we can sing songs, unifying our voice around we have one Lord Jesus Christ. What if we didn't just sing songs together? Because that's easier. What if we then started caring for each other like we cared about our own selves? What if when we looked at the gospel of Jesus and his sacrifice for us, it transformed our hearts and impelled us and compelled us and made us want to walk more and more with Christ? In closing, I just want to tell you that it's very, very helpful to consider that these are fruits. And just like when you're gardening or you're planting, 
We tried to plant some tomato fruits this year. It went terrible. Squirrels ate them. We didn't water them. We didn't care for them. There is work to do in gardening. But when you go to bed at night, you don't wake up the next day and be like, where's the tomatoes? It takes time. It's slow. And at the end of the day, you can't take any credit for it because even if you worked really, really hard to keep all the squirrels out and water it and feed it and fertilize it and do all the work of gardening, it's God who gives the growth. So at this church, if there's any love, if there's any joy, if there's any peace, if there's any patience, if there's any kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control in individual members and collectively as a community, we give all glory and praise to Jesus Christ through his empowering Holy Spirit because he gives the growth. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we want to give you thanks now for this amazing plan for the universe. I pray, God, that as we unfolded and walked through the plan of scripture that you have for us, how you're going to deal with sin and suffering and pain and evil, if you're going to change people, God, what a glorious plan. We deserve for you to just get rid of all of us, but instead you're going to change so many of us. Thank you, God. Thank you for choosing that alternative I hope and pray that all of us in this room would know that our destiny should be to be get rid of, to be punished, to be separated from your presence, but instead you pursued, you ran after, you chased, you caught us down. We were on our hell-bound race, but you came and woke us up in our spiritual slumbers. God, thank you for the quickening work of the Holy Spirit to wake us up from the dead to give us new life, to speak life into us like you spoke life into the creation of the world, new creation into our heart. Thank you for bringing us into a community of people now that can help each other love and walk in the spirit together and in harmony with one another. Oh God, give us the grace we need to make the main things the main things and not be divisive over silly, trivial matters. God, help us to truly love each other, not bite and devour and look down upon others. Increase our ethnicities from other nations. Increase our older and younger ratios, God. May this church be further diversified and glorify the God who can bring all kinds of different people together from different backgrounds and ages and stages and bring them under the lordship of Jesus, the community and unity of Christ. God, we're asking for so, so much more because we know this is your plan. Your plans are good and we trust them and we long for them. And even more so, we long for the day when you realize these plans and the hope of righteousness comes and all of it comes to fruition when you return. So come, Lord Jesus, come soon. In Jesus' name, amen.